It's Thursday, May 19th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. And while I can lay claim to that rather wordy job title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow in the podcast business these days. And if you don't believe me, go to the Hoover website and check it out for yourself. Go to hoover.org, click on where it says publications, go to where it says podcasts, and you'll see just the whole galaxy of stuff we do. We just cover the waterfront with issues, all good stuff. And also subscribe to our podcast. Very simple. Uh, You'll get notified when we have a fresh one up for you. You can also sign up for our daily, or excuse me, our monthly pod blast which delivers the best for our podcast to you each month and hopefully this podcast will make the cut hoover podcast is one facet of ideas making a free society my guest today is cole bunzel cole bunzel is a fellow at the hoover institution as well as a fellow at george washington university's program on extremism and editor of the blog jihadica which is jihadica.com where he writes on the ideology of sunni jihadism a historian and Arabist, Cole Bunzel studies the contemporary affairs of the Islamic Middle East with a particular focus on violent Islamism and the Arabian Peninsula. He's here today to talk about a somewhat overlooked part of the world these days, given the attention devoted to events in Ukraine, and that would be the Middle East and its many components. Cole, thanks for coming on the podcast. Bill, good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure, my friend. Um, let's talk a bit about you, if you don't mind, and let's talk about what led you to this topic. So uh, you graduated from Princeton in, I think, about 2008 or so, if I'm not uh, mistaken. That's and, correct. Uh, you, study, you majored in Near Eastern Studies, and you also are fluent in Arabic, correct? I try to be, yes. Try I, to spent, be. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in Syria after college. I, I lived there for a year in Damascus. I also did a PhD in Near Eastern Studies after that. So question, what drove you into this field, Cole? Would it have been 9-11 and then the war in Iraq, or did you always have an interest in the Middle East? Well, the Middle East had a particular salience when I was uh, starting college on account of 9-11 and the war in Iraq. And so I took it upon myself to study Arabic. It was a pretty popular uh, subject in those days, I'm sure, uh, similar to what's happening with uh, Chinese right now. Uh, so it was pretty typical. I spent some time in the Middle East. Uh, I have no uh, no family uh, relationship to the region or anything like that, but it's always uh, been a very intriguing place, a place with a lot of uh, uh, chaos and uh, militant religion. Uh, so those kinds of things have always been appealing to me. So not to get off the beaten path here, but when you graduate from a school like Princeton and you are fluent in Arabic, uh, who is beating down your door for your services? Is the government coming at you? Is the private sector coming at you? Is academia interested in you or is it uh, all of the above? Oh, I wouldn't say anyone is necessarily coming after you. Uh, I I did work for the government for a little bit, the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, while I was doing a master's degree. Uh, so yeah, there, there's interest for people who who speak Arabic, um, but I think it's a reflection of our our, our uh, government bureaucracy that I was actually working on Kurdish issues in the government. Uh, so uh, take of that what you what you will. Okay, well let's get into it. We have uh, five uh, topics, five areas I want to get into. Let's begin with Iran. Uh, you're familiar with the TV show Deal or No Deal, Cole. Um, is there going to be a deal or not a deal with regard to Iran and its nuclear aspirations? Well, it's a very hard question. Uh, although, I mean, it was only a couple of months ago that the Biden administration was saying that there are only weeks left for a deal to be reached. But Iran continues to drag its feet. In March of this year, apparently, all of the uh, the parameters of a revived nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, uh, all of that was ready. Uh, and then uh, Iran came up with a another 
demand, which was that the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, one of the uh, elements of Iran's military, they wanted that to be delisted from the U.S.'s foreign terrorism list. And the United States, to its credit, the Biden administration, to its credit, has said, no, we're not going to take that step. Now, they've the Biden administration has offered a kind of um, uh, concession here by saying, well, maybe we can take you off the list so long as you pledge not to, say, uh, assassinate Mike Pompeo and other former Trump administration officials. And they said no. So uh, we're at an impasse here. Uh, it's hard to know whether uh, the Iranians are dragging their feet because they wish to drag their feet and uh, continue to enrich uh, uranium and use their advanced centrifuges uh, as they progress toward uh, their, as they shrink the breakout time to a nuclear bomb, uh, or if they are trying to drag out the negotiations in order to wrest every last possible concession from the Americans. I tend to think it's the latter. I tend to think that there will be uh, a nuclear deal, but I'd say it's about 50-50 right now. It's a 50-50 toss-up. Uh, we were seeing this week an Iran coal protest uh, in Iranian cities after the government cut subsidies on food items. We're talking cooking oil and eggs and milk. Um, I read a story that said the price of cooking has increased about 400% overnight in that country, and people are taking to the streets and protesting. We've seen protests before, though. They've come and gone in Iran. Um, simple question here. Is this republic long for the world? How sustainable is this operation if the public's going to keep protesting when things get worse and worse? I think Iran is a very divided society. You clearly, you see in these protests, uh, uh, protests, not they start as protests about, uh, about economic issues, about the cutting of subsidies. There have been protests in the past regarding the, the cutting of subsidies for, for oil and gas. Um, but once you have these protests, what you see is the demonstrators are calling for the end of the regime. And they're saying things like, we don't want to be sending our, our, our weapons uh, our resources, our money to to uh, to Lebanon, to Iraq, to Yemen. Uh, they want they 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 want uh, democracy. Uh, so th it's a tough uh, it's a tough position uh, for for these people to be in. I think Iran's a very divided society. I think the United States should should stand strongly with those protesting. Uh, the Biden administration was a little slow, a little reluctant, I think, to come out strongly in support of this most recent. Uh, string of protests, but they have uh, much better than what the Obama administration did in 2009 with the so-called green movement, which he very much was reluctant to even mention. Right. Uh, so, uh, but, but for the time being, I, I do think this regime is very much entrenched. It's going to, it's going to require a lot more than just some scattered protests to, to bring it down. What can the U S really do Cole, other than offer lip service to these protests? Oh, it can do more than that. It can, it can, um, help them organize. It can help them uh, bypass internet uh, outages, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it can support um, democracy initiatives outside of Iran, uh, things like that. But um, you know, the, these kinds of protests, they don't have the the organization. Uh, they're they're not exactly a government in waiting to be installed, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, so, what is the long game of this regime? What does what does this regime want to accomplish ultimately? I know it talks, well, all the time very, about to, it talks all the time about destroying Israel, but does, does it really want to destroy Israel or what, what is really its goal? I think it absolutely does want to destroy Israel. It's a very ambitious regime. It's, it's a revisionist regime. It, it believes that the United States uh, has its fingers everywhere in the Middle East. It wants to expel the United States 
uh, military presence from the region and that to that and that to that extent it's quite similar to the the Sunni jihadis in al-Qaeda and ISIS though they, they disagree about just about everything else uh, so they want to get rid of the United States they want um, they want to assert power uh, across the region and from Iraq to Syria to Lebanon it's already created this so-called uh, Shiite crescent where it's expanding uh, its its influence uh, we've seen that extended to Yemen most recently with the Houthi movement. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a regime that also clearly wants to have uh, nuclear weapons. Um, it's it sees itself as the um, spokesman, uh, as as it were, for for Islam and for Islamic power, and um, it believes in exporting its its revolutionary ideology and basically uh, having hegemony over the Middle East. That's that's what it seeks to do. And if it developed a nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons, plural, I guess I should say, Cole, what does it want to do with the nuclear weapons? Does it see them as a weapon of first strike? Would the Iranians just want it as insurance, if you will, sort of like the position North Korea is in or Russia is in, where you don't want to attack somebody who has nukes? I think that it mainly wants the nuclear weapon for its own uh, security in the sense that the United States and its allies would be less inclined to attack and to bomb the government there, just the, just as we are with respect to North Korea, um, it would it helps to entrench the regime. Um, on the other hand, uh, it, it does threaten uh, to wipe Israel off the map. Of course, a nuclear weapon in Tel Aviv uh, is also going to uh, kill a lot of Palestinians. So uh, there are a lot of people, including myself, who, who do not believe that Iran is going to drop a nuclear weapon uh, day one on Israel. That that wouldn't be a very wise strategic move. Um, but it it mainly wants uh, nuclear weapons. It wants the prestige of nuclear weapons. It doesn't want to be treated like a, a second rate power. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, let's shift to Israel. Um, I saw a report this week. Colt said the Israeli Air Force is about to do a drill, a simulated attack on Iran. It's called Chariots of Fire. Uh, the United States Air Force is involved in this as well. We're providing air tankers to refuel the Israeli fighter jets. What message do you think Israel's trying to send to Iran by doing this? Well, I think it's it's both Israel and the United States where we're basically demonstrating to the Iranians that we have the capability. Uh, maybe not necessarily the will at this present time, but certainly the capability to carry out a coordinated attack on Iran, on Iranian nuclear facilities to set them back, um, hopefully at least a couple of years um, with regard to their, their nuclear uh, production. Okay. Uh, now, in Israel in April, a new wave of Palestinian terrorism uh, in the country. Uh, you had a really interesting analysis uh, looking at Israel. What I uh, really enjoyed about it, Cole, was you looked at it the uh, from the perspective of the Islamic State. And um, here's a quote that uh, caught my attention. This is uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi back in 2015. He is uh, no longer with us. I think he was taken out by army rangers in 2019, wasn't he? Uh, anyway, he uh, gave a speech as he was uh, very fond of doing and including in the face was uh, the speech was the following phrase quote killing the jews and liberating palestine yeah he he did want to to kill the jews and to liberate palestine but uh, as i as i tried to, to illustrate in that piece uh, these were not priorities of the islamic state and they continue not to be uh, priorities of the islamic state so in in march of this year uh, there was a an islamic state terrorist attack by two um i think you could call them commandos in Rimasiyan, which is the, uh, uh, an Arabic term for somebody who essentially goes into a battle knowing that 
uh, he will die, but not, not necessarily blowing himself up. Uh, so you had this attack, you had them uh, pledging allegiance to, to the new caliph, uh, but this is an ex- and and they uh, and they killed a couple of people if I if I recall correctly, um, but these are ex- this is an extremely rare uh, attack uh, by the by somebody acting in the name of the Islamic State in Israel. It's almost unheard of, um, and that is I think partly because the Islamic State in its messaging has put uh, quite little emphasis on attacking Israel today. The way that they they kind of talk about this is, and this goes all the way back to Abu Musa Zarqawi, who was the leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq before his death in 2006. The way they talk about this is that the only way that we're ever going to actually conquer Israel is if we create an Islamic State, and that Islamic State will expand, and we will uh, then we will be able to conquer uh, Jerusalem and kill the Jews. And, uh, and that might have something to do with, with end times prophecies. Uh, so, and, and the model for this that they, that they invoke is uh, Saladin and the, um, I think it's the 11th century, uh, who uh, was able to create a Sunni Islamic state that defeated what was then a, uh, a Ismaili Shi uh, state in Egypt, and then from there go on to conquer uh, Jerusalem, expel the Crusaders, etc., uh, so that is kind of the historical model that they invoke. Um, they actually criticize some Islamist groups. They, they're very critical of Hamas and Islamic Palestinian Jihad, which they consider uh, to be apostates, so not even Muslims to begin with. But they're also critical of Al-Qaeda, and they're, they're critical of, of those in the jihadi movement who put in their what is, in their view, an undue emphasis on, on Palestine and liberating this, this land, which they say is, is, ought to be no different as a theater of jihad from, say, Iraq and Syria. So their priority is, is in the lands that are currently controlled by, uh, by Arab governments. And as we talk about Israel, call it its priorities or its greatest concerns. Uh, which do you think tops the list? We can look up north to Syria. We can look across to uh, Iran. We can look at uh, the war in Ukraine and the geopolitical consequences from that. What What do you think is kind of the biggest concern right now if you're the Israeli government? Well, certainly the uh, the, the threat of an Iranian nuclear bomb, that's probably at the top of the list. And then I would say uh, Hezbollah to the north, uh, they have... I believe something like 13 times as many rockets pointed at Israel uh, mm-hmm. compared to 2006. And uh, because of the, the new land corridor that Iran has been able to build uh, since the, the 2011 uprising in Syria, um, the, there is an increasing flow of, of weapons and materiel going to, to Lebanon, going uh, to Syria. So uh, you see almost every week uh, reports of an Israeli bombing raid on different targets in Syria, which the, the Israelis do not claim, but uh, everyone is uh, well aware that it's them. And they're, they're targeting IRGC, um, warehouses, things like that, um, weapons material going to, to Hezbollah essentially. Okay, let's shift now to Syria, and uh, we'll get to Bashar al-Assad in a second, Cole. But there was a news report last week that a Russian air defense system in Syria fired a missile at Israeli jet striking Iranian-related targets in Syria. Uh, the question is why the Russians would do that, and the speculation was that they were sending a message to Israel, which was to stay out of Ukraine. Yeah, this is a, this is a tricky situation for, for the Israelis, as, as I'm sure you're, you're very well aware. The, the Russians have had a, a major military presence in Syria since 2015, when they essentially 
together with the Iranians, they they came to the aid of President Bashar al-Assad, essentially saving his regime from from the revolution. Uh, the United States said that this was this was President Obama said, oh, this is going to be a quagmire for them. Um, it hasn't turned out to be a quagmire whatsoever. Uh, so the Israelis are in a position where if they want to attack, uh, I say IRGC, uh, warehouses, weapons transfers, that kind of thing, they have to have some kind of deep confliction mechanism with the Russians. And that's worked out relatively well. The Russians don't seem to be too bothered by, by this, but um, they do kind of patrol the skies in, in Syria. So uh, it's a problem for uh, for Israel. They can't come out and condemn uh, Russia for its invasion of Ukraine the way that the United States has has wanted it to. Um, so I think that they are sending sending a message of you know stay uh, stay out of our our hair with regard to Ukraine. I think you're right. So Russia Russia controls the skies as you mentioned, Cole, and they also can do mischievous things on the ground, which takes us to the issue of humanitarian aid for Syria. Uh, the United States announcing earlier this month that it wants to uh, send $800 million of humanitarian aid to Syria. Uh, but there's a question mark with this, Cole, and it has to come across the Turkish border. There's a choke point for this. And if the Russians, if they wanted to, they could basically block the choke point and keep the aid out of the country. So why would Russia want to do this? Oh, well, they'd want to do it to, uh, to as retaliation against the United States, against uh, possibly, Ukraine again. possibly Turkey. Yeah, it all comes back to, uh, to Ukraine the Ukrainian uh, war has had a lot of uh, repercussions for the Middle East, and this could be one of them. So this is a, we're talking about a, a humanitarian corridor uh, from Turkey into Syria. It's the last one that exists. Um, and a lot of aid goes through this uh, the corridor. It goes into a region of Syria that's called Idlib. It's controlled by a group called Hayat Tahrir Hashem, HTS, which is a former Al-Qaeda affiliate, uh, U.S., designated terrorist organization that we really don't treat it like one. Um, we, we're bringing all of this aid or we're trying to bring it uh, into Syria. But the, the real threat here is that if the aid does not uh, come into Syria, there's going to be a massive refugee exodus from this area into Turkey and possibly into Europe. So it, it is quite a, um, it's quite the card that Russia could play. But um, I think uh, hopefully I, I'm hopeful that it, it won't happen. Uh, it's it's a complicated mechanism where where Russia has to basically approve um, the the continuation of this humanitarian corridor, and it can with a veto at the UN Security Council uh, uh, basically end it. So um, it, it's it's definitely something that could be a major thing in the news in, in a couple of months. I also saw a call it last week. Uh, the U.S. Treasury Department announced it would allow private sector investment in non-regime held areas of Syria. This would be the north and the northwest. Right. Uh, is this in effect uh, telling uh, North, Assad? Yeah. North and north and northeast. Yeah, north northwest northeast. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, is this in effect saying that Assad is here to say that he's won the civil war? Um, no, I actually think it's it's quite um, to the contrary. What what the message we're we're sending here is that the areas that are controlled by uh, what is in, in the Northeast, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a, a Kurdish-dominated uh, uh, group that is considered a terrorist organization by Turkey, that that is a, and, and we are embedded there with some 900 troops, uh, that that is a legitimate uh, kind of governance structure, and we're going to help uh, prop it up against the Assad regime. The same goes for uh, these areas in the North that are controlled by, by Turkish-backed uh, militias. So, so Syria is, is really, it's a frozen conflict. Uh, the Assad regime controls about two thirds of the country. 
um, the entire area east of the Euphrates River. It's a it's a vast area, mostly desert. That's controlled by by the SDF. Uh, you have these Turkish-backed militias, as I mentioned, they're controlling parts of the north along the border. And then in the northwest, you have the group known as it's a jihadi Sunni uh, group called HTS um, that we basically don't treat as a terrorist organization anymore. Uh, so it's a complicated uh, landscape. And uh, what we're, we're basically, our, our policy, to the extent that we have a policy, is that we're not going to recognize the Assad regime. We're going to continue to pressure the regime and Russia, its its main backer, and, and Iran. Um, the idea is we're demanding political reform uh, for any possible uh, concessions or recognition. Um, but that does not seem actually uh, like a feasible, reasonable expectation uh, anytime soon. Well, Cole Bashar Assad is behaving like a man who doesn't seem to think he's uh, leaving office anytime soon. He visited Tehran earlier this month to meet with uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei. And in March, he visited the UAE uh, as well. I'd like you to break down each of these visits uh, because he's going to one country that's an antagonist, but he's going to another country that's an ally of the U.S. Yeah, this this is very, I think, uh, illustrative of the, the the complexities of Middle East politics. So you have some some governments uh, in the region like the UAE, uh, Jordan, perhaps to a lesser extent, the Saudis, who believe that the Bashar al-Assad, he has basically won the civil war in Syria, at least to the extent that he controls two thirds of the country. Uh, there's really no reason to continue to isolate him and to antagonize him. Uh, we ought to try to bring him in from the fold, uh, bring him, uh, you know, re-enter him into the Arab League, et cetera. Uh, so his visit to the UAE in March, where he met with uh, the crown, who was then the crown prince uh, of uh, of the UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, right. that was uh, an illustration of of this uh, desire on the part of the UAE to kind of welcome Assad back into the fold. Um, on the other hand, he, his main allies, of course, uh, the Russians and the Iranians, and those are the only two countries that he has visited since the outbreak of the civil war. Uh, and this was the second time that he had visited Iran. It's it's hard to know exactly why he visited Iran this month. Um, it was a surprise visit. Uh, there wasn't any grand announcement of a new new initiative or anything like that. Um, but what what did uh, catch uh, my eye was that um, I think it was the Ayatollah Khamenei um, who said something very very critical during this meeting of about those those Arab governments in the region who are normalizing relations with Israel. That of course includes the UAE, uh, right. the only other country that uh, Bashar al-Assad has has visited this year. Uh, so uh, Assad would of course love to be recognized by everyone, but the the Iranians might have been sending a message to to Syria saying, you know, you you better uh, keep. Um, your distance from these other governments. We're, we're the ones who saved you, um, that sort of thing. Do you think that uh, the UAE leaders received any kind of blowback for this? Uh, would the United States have called up and said, hey, what are you doing? Would Israel, which is now a trading partner with the UAE, would they have, would they have gotten involved? Well, the United States was, was uh, very outspoken in its criticism of the UAE for hosting Assad. Right. Um, you know, very condemnatory. Uh, yeah. but, 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 the, but the question would be, Cole, yeah. would there be any consequences for this? Because, you know, we need them and they need us. No, there, and, and there will be no tangible consequences. I mean, we can, we can make our voice heard. Um, we can, we will continue to sanction the regime. 
Um, I think it's, it's more a kind of a publicity message on the part of the UAE. They're trying to kind of incorporate Assad. They're trying to be a little bit more like Qatar, where they can kind of dance around with everyone in the region, uh, be a kind of peacemaker. Uh, they also have closer relations with Iran. This is the UAE then, um, than say Saudi Arabia. So, so that's the role of the UAE. Okay, let's uh, shift now to ISIS, um, the Islamic Caliphate. Um, its priorities right now would it be the Levant? Would it be um, post-American Afghanistan fighting the Taliban? Cold, or would it be maybe opening a new front line against the post-Soviet Central Asian regime? This would be what Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, I guess. Right. So I think the first thing that people should understand is that the Islamic State operates um, like a like a like a it's an it's, it's a network of, of right. various groups across uh, the greater Middle East and Sub-Saharan right. Africa. Right. Um, this, this is not a government with this with a capital. Yeah. And <laughs> now, it, it does have a caliph, uh, right. you know, a new caliph as of as of March. I think his name is Abu Hassan al-Hashimi al-Qurashi, but uh, who he actually right. is doesn't really uh, seem to be a public knowledge yet, uh, but he's not necessarily coordinating anything. So to the extent that the Islamic State has priorities, it, it has um, a bunch of different uh, so-called provinces or, or affiliates in different regions uh, that have varying degrees of, uh, of capacity for, for attacks. And where it's been concentrating its attacks, where it's been most successful of, of late, and you were alluding to this, I believe, is, is in Afghanistan, Yes. Uh, mostly Eastern Afghanistan near, near the, the capital in Kabul. Um, and as you, I think alluded to, there were some recent rocket attacks into uh, Tajikistan and, and Kyrgyzstan, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, so that, that is a, a new front potentially for, for the Islamic state. It's a group that uh, appears to have, I think, according to the DOD, about 2000 uh, fighters. It could be uh, well above that uh, just given the frequency of attacks. I, I looked at, um, so I spent a lot of time on, on Jihadi Telegram. Telegram is a, a messenger uh, app, a lot like WhatsApp, sort of like Twitter. Uh, and this is where groups like the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, this is where they shared their, their messages. And um, just in the last couple of days, if you look at the attacks in, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, this is just a, a couple that I wrote down. Uh, there was a murder of two Shia civilians in Kunduz, in northern Afghanistan, shooting of a Pakistani police officer in Peshawar in, in Pakistan, right across the border from Afghanistan, uh, the shooting of a Taliban member in Talakan in northeastern Afghanistan, shooting of two Taliban members in Nangarhar province in eastern Afghanistan, an IED exploded on a Taliban military vehicle in Kabul, all in the past couple of days. So this is a, this is a group that is, is very, very active. And some of the terrorist attacks that it has claimed in recent weeks have been extremely, extremely lethal. Out of curiosity, how do those read, Cole? Do they read just like action reports saying today we killed X, Y, and Z in this location? Or is this the full flourished, you know, the streets will flow with the blood of the infidels and all that? <laughs> it's it's basically a wire service. Uh, so no, <laughs> no, the, no, none of the blood flowing. Um so you just it just usually it says the soldiers of the caliphate have targeted such and such target, uh, resulting in such and such outcome. Uh, all praise be to God. Uh, what else does ISIS do on social media? <laughs> well, um, ISIS was very famous in the West for its English language magazine, uh, which it no longer produces. But in Arabic, it is still extremely productive. So every Thursday uh, around the same time, so in about, I think, um, eight 
hours from now, there will be a new Arabic newsletter about 20 pages long that comes out. Uh, it's extremely well produced. Uh, it basically showcases all the various attacks uh, of the Islamic State across uh, the world that week. Uh, it includes editorials, uh, sometimes the speeches of the leaders, uh, various articles about, about matters of religion. Uh, so it, it's very productive. That's one thing. Uh, you can also go into these uh, social um, media on Telegram uh, chat groups. It can be hard to penetrate this, but uh, sometimes they even do um, like uh, meeting spaces. So they're, they're talking to one another um, about politics, about jihad, uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And how does ISIS recruit? I don't want to be flip up. That's a suggestion. If you want to join ISIS, you know, go to the following link. But how do they bring in young men to their to their organization? I think it's less about kind of recruitment than than having an appealing brand uh, that that allows that you know draws people in. Uh, so if somebody wants to, you know, I think one of the first steps uh, for somebody, say in the West, someone who is in in the immediate vicinity of an ISIS theater. Uh, that person would probably start by exploring things on social media. They'd they'd start talking to to various individuals, um, you know, all anonymous uh, people on on Telegram, uh, and then they'd be brought into kind of the inner inner circle where they discuss, you know, um, you know where to where to go, how to join, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, question: Since you've been out of college for about fifteen years now. Uh, what is the difference uh, in uh, an American being radicalized then versus now? In other words, difference. if you if you're you're a young American male and you want to join the movement, you want to fight the holy war, uh, like uh, Shia Johnny uh, from Marin County, California, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same process back then, or is there a different way of going about this? Has things changed since we've been in theory fighting this war on terror for what twenty years now? Yeah, I mean, things have changed and things haven't changed. I think it, it's a lot easier now with with social media to kind of be plugged into the larger uh, ISIS network online. Uh, the way that if you want to claim an attack, uh, say, I mean, I don't want to give instructions, right? But if, you, if you if you wanted to claim, uh, if you were going to carry out a terrorist attack in the name of, say, the Islamic State or Al Qaeda, um, right. the first thing that that group would want you to do is make contact with somebody. Uh, in the group so that the claim can be credible. Uh, ideally, they like to have a picture of somebody with an ISIS flag in the background where you know, you're swearing allegiance to the caliph and, uh, and possibly talking about the attack you're going to, to undertake. So, so that is the kind of ideal uh, situation. And you see that a lot um, back in when ISIS had a, a real presence in Iraq and Syria and and the, the global coalition was, was bombing it on a daily basis. Uh, that's when you saw the most kind of retaliatory attacks by Westerners um, in the West where they, they did this kind of thing. So we've talked for over half an hour now, and we have not uttered the words Al-Qaeda. Um, no, we have not. Uh, Al-Qaeda um, has... I guess compared to ISIS, and I spent a lot of time online in both of these networks, Al-Qaeda is not nearly as vibrant uh, an organization and a network as, as the Islamic State. Um, the leader of Al-Qaeda, a man named Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, he's believed to be located in, somewhere in Afghanistan. He produces uh, these extremely boring uh, t- lecture-type videos that come out 
probably almost every week uh, at, at this point. He was very quiet during the negotiations uh, between the Taliban and the United States from 2020 till, till our withdrawal back in August of last year. Um, but al-Qaeda simply has not been, it's not carried out uh, attacks. There's now, there's a distinction to be made between al-Qaeda central and, and the al-Qaeda affiliates. So a Shabab in Somalia is an al-Qaeda affiliate. It's, it's a very, um, you know, successful uh, militant organization. Uh, you also have an al-Qaeda affiliate in, in sub-Saharan Africa in, in the area around Mali. Um, so, and you have uh, affiliates in, in North uh, in North Africa, and you have one called Al-Qaeda in the uh, Indian subcontinent. But in the places where Al-Qaeda has really wanted to concentrate its efforts include Iraq and Syria. And both of those cases uh, show uh, to me that the group really failed to, to kind of establish a presence. So there was an affiliate in Iraq, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, as many know, led by Abu Musa Zarqawi, that ultimately uh, left the network of Al-Qaeda and became its own uh, entity and the Islamic State. You also had a an affiliate in Syria called Jebhat al-Nusra that also left the al-Qaeda uh, network, much to the embarrassment of Ayman al-Zawahiri. So when I when I don't talk about al-Qaeda, it's because they simply aren't as uh, as successful when it comes to being a kind of um, a network of, of terrorist militancy. Right. I guess the question everybody wants to know, Cole, where is the big splashy attack? Why hasn't it happened? It's now 20, almost 21 years after 9-11. Uh, you listed a lot of small scale uh, ISIS activity, but nothing prominent done in the United States or in Western Europe since then. Nothing really large scale and shocking like that day in 2001. So why would this be? Well, I think the, the first reason is that we have better security. Yeah. Uh, Bin Laden, uh, he wanted to use airplanes again, but he knew that that, that would be difficult. One of the plans I believe he, he tried to devise uh, had to do with private airplanes, which would require less security, but he didn't have the uh, the capabilities to, to carry out such an attack when he was uh, being hunted by the United States. We had a, a vast new uh, counterterrorism uh, infrastructure developed after 9-11. So that, that's the first reason. But I think the second reason is that um, Al-Qaeda... Um, was never as I think kind of big of a threat to the West as we perhaps uh, imagined it to be after 9 11, uh, where it was feared that there could be you know multiple such attacks right. uh, happening. Attacks, right, right. And and if there's a there's a great new book out um, called the Bin Laden Papers by uh, a scholar named Nelly Lahoud, which looks at all of the the recovered uh, documents from the Abbottabad raid uh, from back in in what was it uh, in 2011. And what, what she, she basically concludes that bin Laden uh, had almost no capability uh, to, to carry out or even inspire uh, an attack on the scale of 9-11. He, he very much was committed to this idea. He believed in attacking the West, uh, but it, it's very hard to carry out, uh, to coordinate such a, such a thing, especially when you're stuck in a compound uh, in Pakistan. And the only way that you can deliver uh, messages to the outside world is through you know, encrypted messages on SIM cards. That that's the way that Bin Laden was uh, was uh, interacting with the world for ten years. Okay. So Bin Laden originally from Saudi Arabia. So let's talk about the Saudis' coal. Um, this country fascinates me right now because there are a lot of little things going on here. Uh, question to you, my friend: If the Saudis offered you forty million dollars to be the face of Saudi Gulf, would you take the money and run? No, <laughs> maybe, maybe my wife would like me to, but I, I don't, uh, I, I, I don't know much about golf. I, I think I would get a bad reputation that way. 
Well, we're talking about this, but you know, this has been a big flap uh, here in the country, the uh, Saudis apparently. So the Saudis want to create a rival golf tour to the PGA uh, here in the U.S. Right. And they apparently offered Phil Mickelson uh, $40 million. Uh, Jack Nicholas claims that they offered him $100 million. Um, I'm curious as to why the interest in golf is this, uh, is this part of a sort of a national psyche thing? They want to be more athletic and more vigorous, or is this uh, more of kind of an ego and stature thing saying that, hey, we can do something big and splashy? I think it's more the latter, uh, ego, uh, stature, big and splashy. This is what the Saudis want to do. Um, you know, they've been investing in sports. Part of the, the Vision 2030 plan that they rolled out several years ago does include uh, expansion into sports, uh, mainly right. domestically. But, you know, they've also tried to acquire football teams, uh, that is soccer teams. And uh, so so this is it's not necessarily a surprising step. It, it's interesting. I don't know much about golf. Uh, so uh, the way that this, this would function, I think they might see it as low hanging fruit. The, the winnings being offered by the PGA aren't, aren't necessarily very impressive to what the Saudis are, are offering in their golf tournament. So, uh, you know, they see why, why shouldn't we have a rival, but it, it mainly has to do, I think, with trying to, to increase, uh, Saudi Arabia's, um, you know, image, uh, pub publicity, uh, across the world. Uh, to kind of uh, some, some uh, critics of the regime of, of the Saudis would say that this is, quote unquote, sports washing, uh, trying to invest in sports and, in order to kind of uh, cover up the human rights abuses, et cetera. Uh, they recently hosted this is Saudi Arabia, the Formula One uh, race car thing. I, I don't know much about this either, uh, but apparently it's a very big deal and, and they they've put a lot of money into it. And so, yeah, Saudi Arabia sports, big and splashy, trying to, to show that they're not the kind of backward, um, Wahhabi regime that, that they were until quite recently. Okay. So last month, Cole, uh, president Biden wants to have a phone call, uh, conversation with Mohammed bin Salman. Right. And, uh, he says, no, and there's no phone call. Uh, tell us who is Mohammed bin Salman. And then I'm going to give you about four or five reasons as to why he may not have wanted to take in the call. And I want you to go through them and explain why. But first of all, who is who is Mohammed bin Salman? Sure. Yeah. Mohammed bin Salman is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Uh, that means that he is next in line for the, the Saudi throne. Uh, his mm -hmm. father has a, is effectively uh, kind of retired from the day to running the day-to-day -day affairs of, of the kingdom. And so that role has been taken on by his favorite son, who is uh, MB, he's known as MBS uh, for short, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, so he, he has been a very controversial figure, uh, as everybody will know. Uh, the CIA has deemed him to be responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, in Istanbul in October 2018. Uh, but he's also done a lot of very good things, and, and there's been a lot more repression in the kingdom, but he's done a lot of good things, I believe, uh, for, for the country. He's uh, expanded women's rights uh, to an incredible extent compared to where, where we were in this country about four or five years ago. So women can now drive. They no longer have to, to wear the, the, they no longer have to cover their hair in public. Uh, they no longer have to be uh, accompanied by a male guardian uh, to travel, um, to own property, things like that. Um, and, and he's basically tried to, he got rid of the religious police. Um, so the country has been radically transformed in just a matter uh, of years, um, at the expense perhaps, however, of, uh, of um, more authoritarian um, uh, governance structures. 
Okay, reasons why Cole, he might have snubbed the president's phone call. I'm going to give you five possibilities. All of them may actually be truth. We don't know. I want you to go through each one, explain why or why it may or may not be the case. Sure. So reason number one, he is not happy with restrictions on arms sales. The current administration uh, is not as friendly in terms of arms sales as the past administration. So that's choice number one, arms sales. Choice number two. He's upset with the uh, U.S. not helping out and pushing back against Yemen, the ongoing war between Yemen and Saudi. Reason number three, Cole, uh, fear of the Iran nuclear deals we discussed. Uh, Number four would be um, the Biden administration releasing a U.S. intelligence report on the Khashoggi uh, murder that you mentioned a few minutes ago. Or reason number five, that he and the Saudis really miss Donald Trump and they're playing a 2024 long game. So let's go through these one by one. First of all, restrictions on arms sales. Yeah, this was a very controversial issue, something that really upset the Saudis. I think uh, the Biden administration put a hold right when he came into office on some $450 million or so of, of arms sales, uh, basically saying we're, we're going to, to re- as we reevaluate the relationship, we, we re, quote unquote, recalibrate the relationship with Saudi Arabia, we're not going to be sending them arms sales. Um, I think that that has, has been resolved uh, more recently, but um, that was a, a pretty big snub for the the incoming administration to the Saudis. Okay, reason number two, Cole, uh, MBS is not happy with the U.S. and its uh, attitude of position toward Yemen. And there was another issue with regard to arms sales in Yemen. So the the Biden administration, when it came into office, announced that it would no longer be uh, supporting, quote unquote, offensive operations uh, by the Saudis and its uh, supporters, its allies in Yemen. Um, so that, that's been a point of contention as well. Um, I think very, very recently, as you, I believe, know, there was a, uh, a two-month uh, truce uh, declared in Yemen between the warring parties. So I, I think that I'm a little I hesitate to be too optimistic because this is the Middle East, but I, I do think that there is a, a potential uh, for winding down that conflict, um, at least bringing it to a kind of frozen uh, uh, conflict as maybe we have in Syria. Okay, reason number three, Cole, uh, the Saudis are just absolutely living fear and dread of this administration wanting to go on with the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah, I think that's a very, very big one. Uh, the Saudis have not been hiding their uh, their dissatisfaction with the Biden administration's approach to, to Iran. And, and this also goes back, um, and I could bring, should have brought the Houthis from Yemen into this uh, in the first place. The Houthis, which is the, the Iranian-backed Shiite uh, militant group that controls the the Yemeni capital and, and much of the country. They've been firing rockets and 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 armed drones into uh, into Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, attacking the UAE as well uh, quite regularly. And they uh, this is the Saudis. They they don't believe that the Biden administration has pushed back on this activity uh, strongly enough. Um, and and this all goes back to Iran as well. So the the combination of of that attitude toward the Houthis. Uh, also delisting the Houthis from the foreign terrorist organization as soon as the Biden administration came into office. Um, all of that combined with the, the administration's interest in and in, uh, re, re, revivifying the Iran nuclear deal, that's that's uh, upset the Saudis greatly. Okay. Uh, possibility number four, Cole, only two more to go. Uh, the Biden administration releasing the U.S. intelligence report on the Khashoggi murder. And I also believe that didn't uh, um, a, uh, an emissary from the administration go over to Saudi Arabia and bring this up in person too. So didn't that also happen? Yeah, I think that there was um, a meeting. I can't remember with what official that went to Saudi Arabia basically saying, might or it might have been, been, been a phone it, call. 
I yeah. thought it was I thought it was Anthony Blinken, but I could be wrong here. But I just but I do know they put out the intelligence report, which was you know yeah. shocking yeah. shocking in itself. Yeah, there there was some sort of meeting that was trying to give the, the Saudis MBS in particular advanced warning that this was going to happen. Um, now the report, which I've read, is very short. It doesn't really bring any new evidence uh, to the table. There's no uh, smoking gun here, or as they. Uh, one senator, uh, I think, put it a, a smoking saw um, to, to kind of implicate MBS uh, personally. But it, it basically said that the intelligence community finds it concludes that MBS was aware of this operation to either uh, capture or kill Jamal Khashoggi in, in Turkey. Um, well, that's probably true. Um, but by releasing this, uh, the Biden administration didn't necessarily bring any new evidence to the table. It just it just released a report, the the findings of which were already public. So um, I think yeah, the Saudis were 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 perturbed by this. Why are you doing this? And unless you're just trying to uh, you know to alienate and antagonize us. Okay, Colin. The final possibility for the snub: um, the Saudis are playing a long game. They're playing a 2024 long game in particular. They don't like this administration in Washington. Maybe they miss, or maybe they don't miss Donald Trump, but they certainly miss having a friendlier regime back in the U.S. So they're not going to do this president any favors in the meantime. And I guess that also raises the question, Cole, about what the Saudis are going to do about the price of oil. Yeah, I think that the the Saudis are would definitely prefer the Republicans to be in office right now, particularly Donald Trump, uh, who was very very friendly uh, to them, very accommodating. Um, so yeah, they probably are playing a long game. If I were advising the Saudis, I would tell them that you don't want your country to be, you know, political football in the United States, where one administration comes in and and uh, recalibrates the relationship every time. I, that's that's kind of um, a place you don't want to be in. Uh, when this comes, what did you you mentioned uh, oil, right? Yes. So yeah. So in in addition to to, to the snub, there was also the uh, the snub of the request to uh, to produce more oil. Of course, uh, Saudi Arabia has, I think, the, the second largest proven oil reserves in the world. It has about a fifth of uh, production capacity. So, if there's a country that can produce more oil uh, to lower the price of, of gasoline, I just spent uh, almost ninety dollars yesterday filling up my gas tank in California. Uh, God have mercy. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to tell people you live in California. You just tell them I spent $90 to fill up my gas tank and they'll get it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you can partly blame that on the, uh, the poor relationship, uh, between the Biden administration and the Saudis. I think that this was a mistake on, on behalf of, of the Biden administration. I think that they should have kept their, their criticisms, uh, more private, uh, try to manage the relationship that way. But unfortunately, Biden came into office um, having made these kind of public declarations that he was going to treat uh, was going to treat Saudi Arabia and MBS in particular as a quote unquote pariah, the pariah that they are, et cetera, um, and and really hold their their feet to the fire. So uh, unfortunately, we're in this situation. I did see a report just this morning that there may be a visit from President Biden to meet with MBS, possibly within the next month. Um, so I think the Biden administration has learned if we want um, to have a, a working relationship where we can ask the Saudis to, to raise oil production, uh, things like that, um, it might help to just kind of cut back on, on, the, uh, on the needling of them and, and the antagonizing.
This uh, administration just always seems behind the curve, Cole. And this is just kind of another example of being behind the curve. Uh, so let's uh, let's wind down. Let's wrap up here. Um, there are a lot of countries we haven't discussed. Uh, we haven't discussed Lebanon. We haven't discussed Jordan. We haven't discussed Qatar. We haven't discussed Oman. And we haven't said a word about Iraq, have we? No, we have not. Um, all countries that have you know complex uh, domestic politics. Uh, Lebanon, of course, recently had had parliamentary elections where. Uh, the result is, uh, as I understand it, is not favorable to, to Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. They, they will not be able to control the government the way that they did before. I don't think that that's going to really affect the extent to which uh, Hezbollah basically owns the country. Um, but that's one thing. Some people are optimistic about that. I'm not. Um, Iraq's still a divided, divided country. Um, some place, a place where ISIS is very active, where Iranian militias, uh, Iranian-backed militias, I should say, run rampant. Um, so yeah, that's, it's a it's a fairly bleak landscape. You have some uh, some pockets of stability. Jordan is one of them. Oman is one of them. Um, we haven't talked about Egypt. Egypt has a an increasingly repressive regime, but it's also it's fairly stable, uh, except for parts of the Sinai where you have some ISIS activity uh, pretty regularly. Um, but yeah, that's the Middle East. Okay. Uh, by the way, we should plug our colleague, uh, H. Robert Astor, who just did a, a wonderful Battlegrounds interview with the King of Jordan that uh, I'd encourage right. our listeners to check out. Okay. So final question for you, Cole, if I could sit you down with some of these various players, these various leaders, and you could ask one question, what would the question be? I'm putting you on the spot here. So let's say I could sit you down with the Ayatollah Khamenei and you could ask him one question. What would you ask him? Oh, I'd want to know who his successor is. And what the plan is for for that kind of succession, because uh, he's an he's an elderly guy. Um, we don't know much about his health, but the the future leadership of the Iranian regime is, is very much in question. And I I don't know enough about uh, about the top level um, politics of of Iran, but that that's certainly one thing that I, I would want to ask about. Okay, uh, let's see uh, if I could sit you down with Mr. Uh, with uh, Mr. Uh, Assad in Syria. What would you want to ask Mr. Assad? Oh, I want to. I have nothing to say to that that jerk. I mean, he's he's a mass murdering uh, maniac. I, I I guess I, I would want to ask if, if he believes that what he's done is worth it. You know, is is killing up to 500,000 innocent people worth holding on to power? Um, does he feel no shame? I mean, that kind of thing. I, I think that he he believes deep down. I, I, this is why I don't want to talk to him. He believes that this was necessary in order to to stave off the annihilation of his 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 sect in Syria, um, the Alawites, and and it was necessary to prevent an Islamist government from coming to power. Um, but I, I, yeah, I'd ask him if he has no shame. If you had a chance to ask one question to uh, Naftali Bennett, who is the Israeli PM, uh, most people probably don't know that name. They probably still think it's Netanyahu. But if you could ask him one question, what would it be? I'd ask him, what are you drinking tonight? Because the, uh, the there no longer seems to be a majority uh, in, in, right. uh, in in parliament. I just saw this morning that uh, the coalition that, that he leads is no longer a majority uh, in parliament because there was a, an Arab Israeli who withdrew uh, a, far, a left leaning Arab Israeli who withdrew from the coalition, uh, criticizing the uh, the government in Israel's approach to the Palestinian issue. Uh, interestingly, just a few weeks ago, you had a far-right uh, Jewish uh, parliamentarian withdraw from the coalition for just the opposite reasons. Uh, so it, it's a very precarious uh, government. Um, yeah. 
I don't, I don't know. <laughs> ask him how he's feeling. Yeah. Okay. Two more to go here. Mohammed bin Salman. If you could ask a, uh, pose a question to MBS, what would you ask him? I don't know what I'd ask him. I, I, I think um, I'd ask him if he thinks that it's a good idea to, um, for the issue of Saudi Arabia to be politicized in the United States. I'd ask him if, if he's thought twice about, about, you know, having too close a relationship with one political party versus another. Um, Cause I, I think that it's best for, for the Saudis and it's best for the U S Saudi relationship. If, if this is not a kind of personalized relationship in the way that it very much was during the Trump administration. Okay. Then finally call the Caliph, the head of ISIS. What would you ask him? <laughs> I'd ask him what his name is because we don't know who he is. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's first of all. And, and I, I, I'd have, I study ISIS carefully, so I have many, many questions I'd, I'd like to know if he's going to give a speech that the previous uh, caliph uh, who died in, I think, in, back in February in a raid in Syria, he never uh, gave any public uh, address, which is very rare for an ISIS leader uh, going back uh, to Zarqawi and, and his successors. It was just, very, I mean, the most common thing that the, the leader does is to give you know, routine speech you know, saying something uh, nice to to the soldiers of the caliphate, et cetera, uh, giving guidance. Um, so without that, we, we have a little insight into what the, the leader is, is thinking and planning and what his emphasis is uh, on the future. I'd also ask him, uh, you know, how long he thinks he expects to live, because one, one job that uh, doesn't seem to have a very long uh, duration is leader of ISIS. It's like, it's like being a Russian colonel these days. <laughs> right. It's not job security. All right, Cole, I think we've kind of covered the ground. Right. I think we did. Okay. Uh, finally, what are you working on these days? Oh, I, uh, well, I'm, I'm waiting. Uh, my, I have a book in production with Princeton University Press. It's a history of Wahhabism uh, from the mid-18th century to more or less the present. Uh, looking at the, this was the, this is the foundational uh, religious ideology of Saudi Arabia. It's, it's very militant, very aggressive, very exclusivist uh, in, in its early uh, years, which, which really are more like uh, a century uh, and a half uh, of early years. And this is a movement that would be very inspiring uh, to groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda today. So that's, that's something I'm, I'm working on, and I'm working on a new project on, on jihadi ideology, uh, looking at some of the leading uh, jihadi thinkers uh, who live in Jordan um, that sort of thing. I have a few other projects. Yeah. I look forward to the book and I look forward to having you back on the podcast and hopefully we'll have something positive to talk about. <laughs> well, if we're talking about the Middle East, uh, I wouldn't hold your breath. Very good. Cole, I sure appreciate the conversation. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word and tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Cole Bunzel, brain man that he is, is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Cole Bunzel. That is spelled C-O-L-E-B-U-N-Z-E-L at Cole Bunzel. I mentioned our website beginning the podcast. That is hoover.org, www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. Which delivers the best work of Cole Bunzel and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.